ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Tuesday the 19th of December. I'm Stephanie Smale coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yugara people in Brisbane. Today, the United States forms a global coalition to protect ships from rebel attacks in the Red Sea. Are the rate rises over? We dig into the latest thinking at the Reserve Bank. And a blessing with limits. The world's Catholics react to new guidance from the Pope on couples in same-sex relationships. I think it's a wonderful idea by the Pope. Congratulations to him. All human beings need God. I think you have the right to change whatever you want. Now, in terms of the Catholic Church, I think the Pope is on the wrong side. The rain is finally easing in far north Queensland, but the flooding disaster that's hit the region is far from over. Several communities are still cut off and authorities are trying to get locals out of the remote town of Woodjul Woodjul again today after water engulfed homes. With the weather continuing to improve, the full impact of the torrential rain is becoming clearer and locals say the recovery won't be quick. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. In Queensland's far north today, fishing boats have become ferries. It's a 60-foot boat, originally just for fishing charters, but uh, right now we're using it as a water taxi, ferrying people from Port Douglas to Cairns, Cairns back up, bringing food stock back up, stocks up to Port Douglas. We would have had probably 700 phone calls within about five hours. Kevin Sampson is a skipper at Norseman Fishing Charters in Port Douglas. In the past 48 hours, he's been tasked with some very important deliveries. I've got people who can't get home. I've got dogs on here. I've got ambulance officers, police officers. I've got a kidney. I've got blood samples. In the community of Woodjul Woodjul, a second attempt to evacuate the town's population is underway. Deputy Commissioner Shane Shalepi is the state disaster coordinator. He says around 300 residents will be evacuated to Cooktown. We've been heavily engaged with uh, Cooktown Local Council who um, who are well prepared to receive the, the people from Woodjul Woodjul and they'll have the support of the state government agencies such as Department of Communities uh, and everyone else in our evacuation centres. And then we're working with the agencies to look at um, some uh, alternate housing options in around Cooktown and surrounding areas uh, as quickly as we can. But it's not the only community still waiting for help. Well, we've still got isolated communities from Cooktown all the way down to Innisfail. Um, some of these communities have been isolated since Tropical Cyclone Jasper came over and they've mm. been without power for some time. Leaving residents in towns like Dajara to fend for themselves. We've been speaking to a local resident there who's done a fantastic job and rescued eight people there in his boat yesterday, which is, you know, um, absolutely heroic. Um, mm. But, you know, I'm concerned about those little small communities uh, around the Jara, around Bloomfield, and we've got uh, helicopters lifting police into every one of those communities today. As ex-tropical cyclone Jasper moves north, it's taking the bulk of the rain with it. Sarah Scully is from the Bureau of Meteorology. There's been rainfall totals again of around about 100 to 130 millimetres across the area, but that's far more typical. And importantly, we're seeing the river gauges steadily fall uh, and most of the rivers are now at moderate or below moderate uh, flood levels. We've still got the 
Murray at major, but all the rest of them are either at moderate or even minor. Impacted residents have been offered emergency payments of $180 for individuals and up to $900 for a family of five or more. The federal government says more relief is set to be announced. Leichhardt MP Warren Ench says the community wasn't warned. I raised concerns a couple of two or three years ago when when the Bureau decided to withdraw the majority of its assets out of far north Queensland and relocate them into Brisbane. Now, they had no idea. All their, all their models and they didn't predict it. They didn't know that there was this massive one in a hundred year event sitting right on the tail end of a Category 2 cyclone. Minister for Emergency Management Murray Watt says those concerns haven't been raised with him. Well, it sounds to me that Warren Ench is saying that he raised those concerns with the government that he was a part of. If he's talking about raising these things two or three years ago, I can't speak to what the government he was part of did uh, in response to his representations. Um, but as I say, I've got very high confidence in the Bureau of Meteorology. If there are if there are changes that have been made that we need to have a look at, happy to have a look at that. But uh, none of those concerns have been raised with me during this event. Meanwhile, an effort to supply towns that have been cut off is getting underway this lunchtime. Some roads that had been cut, including major highways like the Bruce between Cairns and Townsville, are slowly being reopened, while the flooded Cairns Airport has confirmed its runway has now been cleared. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting. The unprecedented rain has caused havoc across the Mareeba Shire, north of Cairns, with hundreds of people still isolated. Peter Franks is the council's CEO and I spoke to him a short time ago. Peter, what sort of rain totals have you seen in your region specifically and what is the damage looking like at this stage? Okay, at my house, I've got a little electronic weather station. I've had 2.45 metres of rain uh, since Wednesday last week. Um, damage across the Shire is significant. There are a number of places we haven't been able to get to, but those we have, we've lost a couple of bridges, we've lost causeways, houses have been damaged, um, private roads, and then the agricultural sector has been hit very hard as well. So significant damage across the board. What impact will that sort of extensive damage have on the communities in your region? Economically, it's going to hammer people. We're an agricultural producing area. This is mango season and we grow a lot of mangoes, we grow a lot of citrus and it's been hammered. So the farmers are going to struggle. You've got a number of communities still isolated in your area. How many people are there and how are their fuel and supplies holding up? We've got, at this stage, three different communities who are still isolated from the seven yesterday. But there's about three, 350 people isolated. Yesterday, we did a couple of fuel drops by helicopter. And in one area, we did a major food drop because all these communities have been isolated since Wednesday last week. But we're remaining in comms with these people and trying to get in whatever they need as soon as possible. Is everyone well? Have there been any reports of injuries? We've had no reports of significant injuries or anything like that. Um, we, in a couple of cases, we've had to fly in people's medicine. But no, thank goodness everyone's been safe.
How long are you expecting this rebuild to take? How long are you expecting for your communities to be back up and running as per usual? Um, look, it will take 18 months to two years. Unfortunately, we are subject to these sort of events, not as bad as this, but events each year. So it takes a while to do the full reconstruction to get it back to what it was. But we will be up and running in two, three weeks. We will be back to operating, but it'll just take a lot longer to get it fully back into place. That's a big job. How are people feeling? Um... Happy it's stopped raining. We've got a really resilient community. They're pulling together. Friends and neighbours are helping each other out. You know, we'll come through it. There's also been some questions raised about whether the region got enough warning ahead of this event. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like you got enough warning? Yeah, I think Bomb did a good job. We knew the cyclone was coming. We knew it was coming almost a week out. Once the cyclone had passed, we got this trough warming on the coast, which is unusual. Nobody could have predicted it. Yeah, I I have no complaints with BOM. I think they did a good job. The CEO of the Mareeba Shire Council, Peter Franks, there. The Reserve Bank Board has revealed more details about why it left official interest rates on hold a fortnight ago. The RBA board minutes have been released and there's optimism that rate rises might have peaked and rate cuts could even be possible next year. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan is at RBA headquarters in Sydney's Martin Place and we spoke earlier. Peter, borrowers have been hurting from surging interest rates. Can we have any confidence that the worst is over? Well, Stephanie, this set of minutes really did show encouraging signs. In fact, they use that word, encouraging signs, that uh, those aggressive interest rate rises, 13 since May last year, are at last working. And what the RBA board is saying, that while they're pretty cautious, they've agreed that there's sufficient value in waiting for further data to assess how their risks are evolving. In other words, whether or not those rate rises are are doing what they're intended to do is to bring inflation down back towards that 2 to 3% target band. And inflation is at the moment still well above that. They have to bring it down. But it looks as though uh, the battle's being won and that there is a reasonable risk that inflation uh, will be conquered and might even be getting back down into that 2 to 3% target band. Uh, before the forecasts. Did the RBA board consider doing the opposite and raising rates at that meeting a fortnight ago? Uh, Yes, there there were details of the discussion about the case for raising interest rates, the December 5 meeting. I have to say it it didn't show there was any aggressive debate at all about whether or not there was a need to raise interest rates, but there was concern that inflation is going to be staying higher for longer, or that's what their predictions are, and it might actually stay above the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target band until the end of 2025. It might not come down lower before that. So that's a significant risk. But on the balance, they're saying that they really are data dependent at the moment and they need to see what's going to be coming in. They know that inflation remains a risk. It's too high at the moment. But there is a view that another rate rise, what would have been the 14th rate rise in December, probably would have been too much and it would have tipped some households over. And is there a chance that if inflation rebounds, we might be seeing another rate hike in the new year? 
Well, Stephanie, economists are really now waiting on the next set of consumer inflation numbers, which aren't out until January the 31st. We'll be seeing the quarterly numbers and the monthly inflation numbers. Now, if inflation shows it's uh, stabilising or falling, that's good news. But if there is evidence of a rebound, well, the Reserve Bank Board will be extremely worried that they've let it go again and they might have to step in with another rate rise. But, Stephanie, at the moment, there's only about a 5% chance of a rate rise in February. Uh, the Reserve Bank Board has January off. There's more data to go, but at last, at the end of the year before Christmas, a cautiously optimistic tone that that uh, battle against inflation is being won. The ABC's senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. Pope Francis has allowed priests to bless same-sex couples, marking a major shift in the Catholic Church's stance towards the LGBTQI community. The move is likely to face strong opposition from some Catholics and marks a new chapter of debate on a highly contested issue. Gavin Coote reports. For some, it's a paradigm shift. Others, too little too late. And still others, a mistake. Pope Francis's decision to approve blessings of same-sex couples has many divided, including in Brazil, which is home to the world's largest Catholic population. I think it's a wonderful idea by the Pope. Congratulations to him. All human beings need God. I think you have the right to change whatever you want. Now, in terms of the Catholic Church, I think the Pope is on the wrong side. The new document issued by the Vatican and approved by the Pope paves the way for Roman Catholic priests to bless same-sex and unmarried couples. The Vatican says it should be a sign that God welcomes all, but that it continues to view marriage as between a man and a woman, though Paul Collins, a Catholic Church historian, sees it as an important step. Well, it fits, I think, very, very firmly into the attitude that Pope Francis has, <clears throat> that the church's primary responsibility is to ministry, is to caring for people, is to um, making the church accessible. But there are people who have been very hurt by being described as, as morally disordered. Um, you know, these awful phrases that were used um, under previous popes. Um, and we, we've got to um, allow those people time uh, to deal with the feelings of rejection that the church has certainly inflicted upon them. How exactly would blessings work in practice? What does that look like? <laughs> Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem to be spelt out particularly well. I had a quick read of the decree. Um, it doesn't seem to be spelt out all that well in the decree. I think what most priests will do is certainly uh, go into the church. Uh, they'll, they'll stand um, somewhere in front of the altar. Uh, they'll probably wear basic uh, liturgical vestments and, and just read a blessing uh, over the couples. It's not only the Catholic Church that continues to grapple with the question of marriage and same-sex relationships. Fractures in Australia's Anglican Church led a group of Conservative bishops to form a breakaway diocese last year over the issue of same-sex marriage. I think it's ever fractious. It's very hard to see how churches can overcome this. 
Peter Curti is the Director of the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies and an ordained minister in the Anglican Church of Australia. I, th- I do think it's very hard for church leaders to hold together increasingly diverse groups within their own areas. We're seeing this in Western Australia in the Diocese of Perth at the moment. A compassionate archbishop who wants to uh, extend uh, hospitality, as it were, to the LGBTQ community, and that is, is meeting resistance. Not because conservatives lack compassion, it's not that, it's that they feel it departs from scriptural orthodoxy, and that is that for them, the fundamental point, you cannot depart from scriptural orthodoxy, and you have to find ways of expressing compassion in other ways. The progressives want to say, well, the orthodoxy goes so far, and we pay attention to what scripture says, but society has a need to which we must respond. Those are two very different approaches to ministering uh, to, to communities in Australia or anywhere else. They are two very different approaches and two very different ways of interpreting the expression of compassion. Peter Curti from the Centre for Independent Studies, Gavin Coote reporting. The United States is asking Israel to change the way it's fighting in Gaza to avoid more civilians being hurt or killed. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 19,400 people have been killed in Israeli bombardments since the fighting started. Hamas has released a hostage video and warns there will be no negotiation until Israeli military aggression ends. Rachel Hayter reports. In a video released by the armed wing of Hamas, the Qassam Brigades, three elderly Israeli men wearing white T-shirts sit side by side. Don't let us grow old here, the members of the trio say in unison. The video Hamas released in the past hour is an evil terror video. Daniel Hagari is an Israeli military spokesperson. It indicates Hamas's brutality towards very old civilians, innocent and need of medical attention. More than 100 hostages are thought to still be detained in Gaza. Hamas official Osama Hamdan says that won't change until the bombs stop falling. We reiterate that there will be no negotiations on hostage exchange until the Zionist aggression completely stops. The Gaza Health Ministry says the Israeli military has killed more than 19,400 Palestinian people and injured more than 52,000. The fighting started when Hamas gunmen entered southern Israel on October 7 and killed 1,200 people. In Gaza, a woman who's witnessed some of the bloodshed is Safna El Majdawali. In a voice note shared with the ABC, she tells of fleeing violence in Jabalia in the north after Israeli officials told civilians to head south. But she says in the south, she faced more fighting. We left our homes, our bed, our dining table with all the sweet memories and beautiful things at home. We went and said the most important thing is to stay alive. We saw sand, dust, phosphorus, shooting at people while we were walking, defenceless children, huge, huge crowds, everyone carrying something, children, their bags. It was very difficult. Smells of previous corpses, worms and rot coming out of the corpses. I couldn't look. 
Our eyes couldn't bear these scenes. We walked, walked and ran. Health officials in Gaza say Israeli airstrikes killed a further 110 people in Jabalia on Sunday. We continued the march and escaped death. We fled to the schools towards the south. We fled to tents without beds, without blankets, without food, without water. Our children and everyone were hungry. Everyone looked at each other. There is no clean water. There are no bathrooms. Epidemics and diseases have spread everywhere. There's no clean place. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, travelling in Israel, has reiterated his country's support for the war. But he says he's spoken with his Israeli counterparts about making operations more precise. We also have some great thoughts about how to transition from high-intensity operations to lower-intensity and more surgical operations. Israel's Defence Minister Yoav Gallant says the US and Israel have never been more determined and aligned. In our share values, our share interest and our share goals. The United States has also announced plans to form an international coalition to protect merchant shipping in the Red Sea from intensifying attacks by Houthi rebels based in Yemen. International Chamber of Shipping Secretary-General Guy Platten has welcomed the move. It's a flagrant breach of international law. They do seem to be random. We don't know which ones are being targeted, but we do know that it is. Uh, we have to look at the safety of our seafarers. Oil giant BP has joined a growing list of companies who've paused shipments through the Red Sea, which analysts say is pushing up shipping and oil prices. Australia is considering a US request to join the coalition. Rachel Hayter and Nicole Johnston reporting. As the Israel-Gaza conflict continues, many Australians are watching the war on social media platforms such as TikTok and Instagram. Graphic posts and some misinformation about the conflict are being shared widely, prompting concerns about the role of algorithms in shaping perceptions of the war. Experts say more education is needed to help users navigate news about wars on social media. Wing Kuang filed this report. At this Sydney University, students are telling the ABC where they have been following the news about the Israel-Gaza conflict. Mainly social media. Do you follow any specific accounts? Uh, I have started following more accounts, specifically journalists located in Gaza at the moment, but also just the general people I follow, like friends, lots of people sharing it. Lots of Instagram, lots of TikTok, lots of Twitter. It's really different, the type of information that's out on each platform. So I've gotten a lot more information about the war through these social medias. I've kind of deleted social media. Um, I found it to be quite overwhelming. I think it's really easy for young people to fall into echo chambers on social media. They can often have their like ideas amplified by the social media accounts that they follow, and that can be on either side of the conflict. Matthew O'Neill is a professor of communication at the University of Canberra's News and Media Research Centre. He says that is a risk. Based on what you've liked in the past, you'll get more of the same. So if you've liked a very pro-Israel conservative content in the past, you'll probably get more of that. If you've liked something that's very pro-Palestinian, you'll get more of that. So it depends what your behaviour has been in the past, and it kind of creates an information environment that comforts your belief. He says there should be more transparency from social media companies about how they moderate content. Just to have more idea of how the content that we see gets to us would help. We're not going to get a, a balanced diet 
from social media platforms because they're not editors. So they're not trying to be neutral or objective. They're just trying to get engagement. Tanya Notley is an associate professor of communications at Western Sydney University and co-author of the News and Young Australians report in 2023. We asked young people aged 12 to 16 who are getting news from online sources if they've heard of the term algorithms in relation to news, and only 40% said yes. It's not just the way news is being delivered that can be an issue. Users also need to be questioning whether the information is trustworthy, and that's something that's becoming increasingly hard to do. We have so many well-funded disinformation, people who are set up as companies, as businesses, to deliberately create misinformation, false information about issues. And we see this immediately kick in during a conflict. Myth and disinformation is a really complicated space. We all need to have commit ourselves to lifelong education to address it. Besides social media, young people also get their news from their families, friends and teachers making it important for everyone to think twice before sharing information. So just taking those extra steps when you're sharing something that isn't from a reputable, trustworthy, verified news source, I think that's really important that we take an extra level of responsibility when we're deciding to share something. The Albanese government has announced $12.8 million in funding over four years to protect Australians from terrorist and violent extremist online content and provide extra resources to the e-safety commissioner to respond to content referrals. Wing Kwang and Alexandra Humphreys reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. I'm Stephanie Smale. Thanks for your company.